On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And welcome to About Books. In a few minutes, we'll talk with an author and professor who found a new outlook on education through her work teaching the humanities to inmates at a maximum security prison in New York. But first, here's some of the latest stories from the publishing world. A recent focus on gifts given to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has led to fresh scrutiny of the financial arrangements of other Supreme Court justices. And the Judicial Reform Group Fix the Court recently highlighted the book deals of Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch. Fix the Court notes that both Justices Sotomayor and Gorsuch failed to recuse themselves on copyright infringement cases involving Penguin Random House. Fix the Court reported that Justice Sotomayor has earned more than $3 million from books published through Penguin, and the group said Justice Gorsuch, whose A Republic, If You Can Keep It memoir, was published by Penguin's Forum Books in 2019, earned over $500,000. In other book news, the 2023 Pulitzer Prizes were announced. Here's some of the winners. Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power, Jefferson Cowie, he won the prize for history. G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century by Beverly Gage won the biography category. And Stay True, a memoir by Hua Xu, won the prize for memoir or autobiography. And His Name is George Floyd by Robert Samuels and Tolu Olorunipa won the general nonfiction category. Both Beverly Gage and Tolu Olorunipa were recent guests on Book TV. You can find them in our video library. And finally, in publishing news, the U.S. Postal Service announced recently that it would honor children's book author and illustrator Tommy DePala on a new forever stamp. Now, Mr. DePala, who died in 2020, is best known for his 1975 Strega Nona folktale and picture book about a grandma witch and her magical, always full pasta pot. Mr. DePala received a Children's Literature Legacy Award from the American Library Association in 2011, and the new postal stamp art features the cover 
of Strega Nona. And now a conversation with author and professor Brooke Allen, who teaches the humanities to inmates at a maximum security prison in upstate New York. She recently wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about her experience entitled, College Should Be More Like Prison. So, Brooke Allen, what is the Bennington College Prison Education Initiative, and how did you get involved in this? Well, it, there, Bard College started a prison education program. It must be close to 20 years ago now, I think, quite a long time. It was very successful. And my colleague at Bennington, um, Annabelle Davis-Goff, who's a, a writer and, and teacher at Bennington, decided that um, she thought this was quite fabulous and she would try to start a similar one at, at Bennington. And so she contacted a prison, which is exa- not that close. It's about an hour from Bennington in Comstock, New York, and, and after men's maximum security prison. And after a lot of jumping through hoops and, and filling out forms and a lot of you know security issues, she was able to start the program. And I'm thinking that must be, I don't know, maybe close to 10 years ago, seven or eight years ago at least. And I got involved in it through her. She's somebody I admire and take her advice. And she said I would um, love the teaching there, which in fact is true. It's great. Well, what were you teaching at Bennington and what were you teaching at the prison? At Bennington, I taught literature. And it's a small department. So we had a very wide sort of range of things that we all tried to do. And I found myself um, sort of specializing in 18th century stuff because that seemed to be lacking at the college. And I thought it was a gap. And when I moved on to the prison, I took some of that with me. And um, Annabelle said they already had literature teachers enough, but they needed something more broad. So I developed a series of classes called History of Thought. And the first class I taught was on the Enlightenment. And the second class was on the Renaissance. And I've taught a class for advanced students in Romanticism. And then we've done sort of individual classes, like classes on um, Adam Smith, on Tocqueville, on George Orwell, and right now I'm back to literature teaching a class in Indian and Pakistani fiction, which is soon coming to an end. And when you taught the Enlightenment, what was the the, the book that you used? We didn't use a textbook. We did we did readings from the actual authors, and it's quite you know. In, in that case, it's not particularly difficult because the Enlightenment readers were writers were 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 reading to be understood, so they're not trying to hide couch things and too many hidden metaphors. We started with John Locke and Hobbes in the obvious places. And we went on to Montesquieu. We read the, the Spirit of Laws and we, spread, we read Persian letters. We read a lot of Voltaire. We read Rousseau. We read David Hume. We read Thomas Paine um, and the American Founding Fathers and just a whole variety of people. And it was a huge hit. And a couple of the students um, actually said, why don't we read these things in high school? They're so important and we don't know them. So that was a great, it was a hit both at the college and at the, at the prison. Um, it, it is indeed material we should all be reading in high school. So, Brooke Allen, the obvious question is, what was it like teaching John Locke to maximum security prisoners, and what did you expect, and what was the, what was the actual reality? Well, I expected that it might be a difficult um, chore, but in fact they were uh, a lot easier to deal with, and, and, and still are, really, than college students. Um, they have had to make a big effort to get into the program. They have to apply to Bennington College effectively and be deemed um, at a good enough level to get in and do our college level work, not remedial. And um, so some of the students I had were sort of like ordinary college students, quite young. 
and untested. And some of them were men in their 50s and 60s who had been sitting in the prison reading books for 30 years um, and were very, very advanced and could do just fine in any graduate program. So the classes tend to run the gamut between the sort of more basic college freshmen and people who could be in 30-year graduate program. And what was really great for me and continues to be is that they help each other. If there are some students who are very well prepared, they go out of their way to help the people who are less well prepared. And they're all exceedingly motivated. They'll come into the classroom having done the reading two or three times before class, having taken a lot of notes, having looked things up insofar as they're able because they don't have access to the computer or the internet. Um, They're just a joy to work with, what can I say? Um, I I don't know, I I recommend anybody who enjoys teaching to to do this sort of work. Now, Brooke Allen in a recent Wall Street Journal op-ed, you lamented the future of the humanities, why? Well, I mean, for many, many reasons. Um, The students of today, the college students, I think have a radically decreased attention span. And, you know, it's probably 75% comes from internet, social media, constantly being online. But in order to put the attention in that you need to read, say, a book by, by Dickens or... Richardson, they, they they don't seem to have that anymore. The prisoners do have that because they're not online. Um, there is this feeling of things having to be, um, uh, you know, applicable to modern life, which is not really what the humanities are about. Um, there's so many things getting in their way. Um, the, the the prevalence of tech. I think the new the new uh, artificial intelligence. We have no idea where that's going to take us. But certainly the traditional way of of learning in college is going to be turned upside down. And again, I haven't had to deal with that in the prison. They have no access to these things. They write their essays the old-fashioned way in longhand. Um, They have enough access to research materials to help them, but not so much that they're overwhelmed. And they're not being constantly distracted by, by sort of flashier things going on in their lives. What do you think these prisoners are getting from the classics, from John Locke, from Tocqueville, etc.? I think they're getting exactly what I got in college in the 1970s, um, which is a, a expanded view of the world and our relatively small place in it. Um, the, the idea that uh, the brilliant ideas we think we have are not reinventions of the wheel, that people have been to all these places before and have had um, very sophisticated and complex and um, interesting thoughts that we need to be aware of before we wade into the same waters, philosophically, intellectually, historically. Um, you know, I think I think the history of teaching has gone, uh, uh, teaching history has gone down the toilet. I don't know any young people who know any history now at all. And you know how that comes back. I'm not sure. Part of the problem, I think, is is uh, the fact that school boards are locally influenced, and there's no sort of generalized idea in this country, sort of a philosophy of what education is and what an educated educated person looks like. We don't agree on that, and that's a problem. What's a typical day teaching at the prison? Oh well, my class is two and a half hours long. 
Um, I drive two hours to get to the prison. I have to be there a half hour in advance. So I, I get there at about six and the class, I mean, five thirty. class goes from six to eight thirty. Um, and then we all leave again. And during that two and a half hours, something else that surprised me, there's no, um, lapse of attention. They all are sit fascinated throughout the whole class without going to the bathroom, without, you know, looking at the watch. It's really fascinating. I think it's, you know, by virtue of the fact that they're not doing that many interesting things in their lives, and this is a, a high point for them. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. What's the process for you getting into the prison? Security, is there a guard in there? Are they allowed yeah. pencils, etc.? There, there, you, you have to go through a lot of security when you come in. You have to go through a metal detector. Um, you, you're searched to make sure you're not bringing in anything. Um, you have to let them know ahead of time what you are planning to bring. And then once you get into the classroom, we close the door and we're in the classroom by ourselves. But there's a guard in the hall who's, who's usually there's three or four classes going on at the same time. There's one guard out there who's, um, who's there in case anything goes wrong. Nothing ever has so far as I know in, in our classes. Do you get a sense that these prisoners or these cl- students have political opinions? Oh, yes. And I would say that um, 80 percent of them are political liberals. Um, and then you get the odd conservative and they all sort of give that guy a hard time. But in a, in a good natured way, there are no um, there are no ugly political fights in the classroom, which is another refreshing thing. And I feel that one thing that could be applied from the prison to the college classroom is that we could forego political discussions except insofar as they are in the context of whatever it is we're reading. I mean, if you're reading Voltaire and you understand the political context of his time and what it meant to be a liberal, which he was, that is fair game. But then to start, you know, caviling at each other or at the teacher is just not very productive. And we don't get that in the prison. In your op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, you referred to reading some of these authors, some of these classics, as time travel. What did you mean by that? Well, that, too, is something I think we could apply to the college classroom. Because right now in colleges, if you read, uh, I mean, let's just take the most obvious example, Huck Finn. Everybody has talked about this ad nauseum. And um, people choose to become offended at the content of it in reading it in the 21st century context. If you time travel to the 19th century and look at it again, um, you're going to have very different ideas, but it takes a certain sensitivity and tact on the part of the teacher and a certain willingness on the part of the students to uh, be humble and realize that they do not, uh, they're not 
there in the classroom to sit on judgment uh, on everybody in the last thousand years. Now, is Huck Finn a book that you would teach at Bennington? No, I have not taught Huck Finn. Uh, I don't. I don't specialize in American literature. I'm just. I'm just saying that because it's something that's always in the in the news. But for instance, I do teach David Hume, and David Hume is an indispensable um, uh, philosopher for his period. You have to read David Hume, and um, then of course he wrote an essay in which he said that he, you know, he thought that there was a hierarchy in intelligence among the races and we don't believe that anymore science has proved that that's incorrect um but this is not to say that we shouldn't read everything else that david hume wrote which is of the utmost importance and i think my students at the prison get that they understand that um there are classes taught at the prison you know we try to we try to do a wide variety of classes and there have been some i think really interesting classes one on um the Nat Turner Rebellion, there's been one on the uh, Haitian uh, Revolution, um, you know, needless to say, we do African-American literature and things like this, but we try to give a very, very broad spectrum of um, of historical literature and philosophy and to really make the students understand that each book is a product of its own time, it's a creature of its time, and that goes also for the books that people are writing right now, and yeah. everybody needs to get that. Now, Brooke Allen, is the racial makeup of your class at the prison important? Um, not particularly. No, we have a little bit of everything. Um, the only time it's been problematic is because we have certain people who are not quite um, there in English as a second language, and they struggle a bit. But there has not, I mean, it's helpful, of course, to have a, a very diverse population, which we do by definition. Um, we don't have to try for it. It just happens. Um, but there has been, I have not witnessed any acrimony, um, political or otherwise. I've got one guy who takes all of my classes who's a sort of intellectual conservative. He reads, um, he reads things like the New Criterion and the Wall Street Journal. And the other cl- class members will give him a hard time, but it's all in, in very good spirit and laughing. And it, we had one discussion one day about gun control because this sort of issue was something that already came up in the Enlightenment. And I was surprised to find that every single one of my students was passionately in favor of gun control. And I said, would you like to, you know, go further on that? And they said, well, you know, we're, most of us are here because we were, we had access to guns when we were young and stupid and we don't want to be, but it was, that was crazy. So of course we're in favor of gun control. So these things are interesting. Professor Allen, are most of your students uh, there for life? No, uh, a certain proportion, I would say maybe a third of them are. And this has become a particular focus for us because we're trying to figure out, you know, what kind of education you can offer that is ongoing year after year for these students who are passionately interested in that, who want to be doing it all the time. They, they, a lot of these guys have way more than enough credits to get a BA. And we as an institution are only allowed to give the, um, the uh, associate's degree. But some of these guys have enough credits for two BAs. So how do you proceed um, with with education that continues to interest and engage them where they don't sort of have to go through the, the mechanisms of the college essay and all the things they've done many times before? So this is of interest to us, and we're, we're working on different ideas to try to make that happen in, in a smooth manner. Have you been able to hold a graduation ceremony at all? 
yes, there was a graduation ceremony a few months ago for the associate students. And I was not able to be there because I had to be at a wedding. But I saw the photographs and I've never seen so many uh, happy faces ever. It was it was obviously terrific. What's their response to when you grade and critique their papers? Ooh, they're very um, they're very humble. They I've never had anybody argue about a grade. Um, one of my guys who I have no doubt was a dangerous criminal in a former life is af- very much afraid of one of the teachers because he feels that she grades hard. So it ma- you know it makes me laugh. They, they all accept it. They understand their limitations. They um, they're very philosophical about uh, their position in the class, and there's a, a, a attitude of mutual respect. Um, you know, they call me professor, and I call them Mister So and So. Now, um, the the uh, prison has said maybe it's not a good idea to say Mister in case somebody doesn't identify as a man, but the the people that I have have all. Um, said that they enjoy being called Mr. And I do think it's, you know, it's one of the few moments of respect they get in their in their day there. So it's very precious. Now, Brooke Allen, I don't want to get you in trouble, but is it Bennington is a rather elite institution in Vermont and you're teaching at a maximum security prison. What's the difference between, uh, you know, elite students who maybe come from a different background than the men that you're teaching at the prison? I think elite students, um, and I'm, I wouldn't say this about all Bennington students because a great number of Bennington students are on scholarships and have jobs and have to work. But for those who are just take it for granted that they will, their college will be paid for, I think you know there's there's a lot of uh, they, they don't make the same effort that the prisoners do. And I know that in, in community colleges and certain state institutions, you're going to get you know, prisoners who, I mean, I mean, students who are like the prisoners and that they, they very much value their, what they're able to get there and they work hard for it. Um, but it's true that in, I think in elite institutions, a, a proportion, a large proportion of students take a lot for granted. And more and more and more, I would say from, you know, my own experiences and those of my friends, they, they feel like customers rather than um, people who have to conform with a certain, with a certain uh, strictures. When you read and talk about the Founding Fathers, what's the knowledge base of the men in the prison? Um, It's higher than the the ordinary undergraduate base, I would say. Uh, These people do a lot of recreational reading. Um, But, you know, there's so many things that that we as American citizens don't know. And I went to, um, myself, I went to fairly elite schools, and I went to the University of Virginia, and I have a PhD from Columbia, but I did not um, learn a lot of the sort of basic uh, facts about Enlightenment thought and the fact that our Constitution is an Enlightenment document. Um, so this is something we all need to pay attention to. Um, I've taken the uh, citizenship test just out of curiosity, and that would seem to me a very basic um, a, a baseline that everybody should have when they come out of high school. But for some reason, again, our, our, the U.S. as a country doesn't agree on what an education, educated person should know. This doesn't happen. And I remember a few years ago, I think the governor of Arizona said that um, he wanted high school graduates, he or she wanted the high school graduates to come out being able to pass the citizenship test. And everybody had a fit as though that were asking too much of students. I don't understand it. How many students in your class? 
I've had everything from five to 16. Um, it, the, the classes shrunk after COVID because there was social distancing. And, um, and now there's more teachers, so the classes are somewhat smaller, usually between five and 10. And what are you teaching this semester? I'm doing a class I taught at the college two or three times before, which is on Indian and Pakistani fiction. And that's a lot of fun because it's a part of the world that um, that the prison students know nothing about. Um, and they came in the other day saying, thank you, thank you for introducing us to these fabulous authors and this history and culture of this part of the world we knew nothing about. So so it, we have a good time in that class. And there's wonderful, wonderful writers coming out of, out of the subcontinent right now and really for the last hundred years that everybody ought to be aware of. And what is a platonic method of teaching that you use? Well, you're, you're really, it's discussion. I mean, I have nothing against lecture classes. And in fact, I, I, they were my favorite classes in college and they provide a framework. But the Bennington uh, philosophy is more uh, small class discussion based where you're not telling, you're eliciting from the students. And then when you elicit something that you know seems crazy, you, you try to get them to refine their thoughts by asking them further questions. Um, of course, the smaller the class, the better it works. Um, that's that's kind of the, the the philosophy of the college, and and we continue to follow that in in our classes at the prison. Even though I do teach um, survey classes, I mean something like the Enlightenment would be a survey class. You're going from say the 1660s to 1790. And um, and they get the context that's desirable in a survey class, but at the same time you're having very close discussions with individual students and in small groups. Brooke Allen, the title of your Wall Street Journal editorial or op-ed was "College Should Be More Like Prison." Was that your title? It was, it was definitely not my title, and I got a certain amount of flack for it. But um, you know, the, the editorial writers, uh, editors, they want people to, to they want eyes on page. And I think they succeeded really well in that. And there certainly are aspects of the college that I wish could be more like the prison. I wish it were more um, it were more tolerant. I wish it were more peaceful. I'm, I wish there were no phones and, and computers in the classroom. There's so many things I'd like to see similar to well, the kind of class we have in the prison. Brooke Allen, former Bennington College professor who works on that institution's prison education initiative. We appreciate your time on Book TV. Thank you. Bye-bye. And you're watching About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Well, each Tuesday, dozens of new books are published. Here's a recent sampling. Two new history books focus on high-profile congressional hearings of the 20th century. In The Last Honest Man, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and author James Risen profiles Idaho Democrat Frank Church and the Church Committee hearings of 1975 and 76. Officially known as the, quote, Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, the Church Committee helped pull the curtain back on an array of intelligence abuses by the CIA, FBI, and National Security Agency. And another new book that just came out is called The Watchdog. It's by NPR senior editor Steve Drummond. And it looks at Harry Truman's work when he was the junior senator from Missouri. 
Mr. Truman led congressional investigations into military waste and war profiteering during World War II. And it was that work that became known as the Truman Committee that would help springboard him to the vice presidency spot on the 1944 ticket with Franklin Roosevelt. Well, also each week, national publications review the latest books. Here's a couple. The New York Times recently reviewed Hector Tobar's Our Migrant Souls, A Meditation on Race and the Meanings and Myths of Latino. According to the reviewer, Francisco Cantu, Mr. Tobar is as likely to quote historians and cultural theorists as he is to cite students, store clerks, or an undocumented Trump supporter randomly encountered on the street. He is also quick to acknowledge the problematic nature of the word Latino. That's from the New York Times. And in another review, this on the Washington Free Beacon news site, Andrew Stiles reviews Luke Russert's new book, Look For Me There. Luke Russert was an NBC News correspondent, particularly on Capitol Hill. He was the son of Tim Russert, former Meet the Press host. And the book looks at Mr. Russert's travels across six continents and his efforts to come to terms with his father's death. Quote, it's not the worst memoir ever written, not even close, probably, Andrew Stiles writes in The Free Beacon. But as soon as Luke Russert embarks on his global quest for purpose and enlightenment, the average reader will find prohibitively challenging the task of taking him seriously as a writer, traveler, thinker, bon vivant. At various points through his journey, Russert compares himself to Buddha, the Virgin Mary, a Rwandan silverback gorilla, and Jesus Christ. That's Andrew Stiles writing in the Washington Free Beacon. Well, coming up on Book TV's Afterwards program is Alexandra Robbins. She is an investigative reporter, and she provides a behind-the-scenes look at the issues teachers are facing in the classroom today. Her book is entitled The Teacher's a year inside America's most vulnerable, important profession. Here's a preview. Everything we talk about, everything teachers unions are asking for, everything teachers are asking for, it's not just to better the environment for the teachers. Teachers' working conditions, as you say, are children's learning conditions. If teachers are asking for you know, a better HVAC system, that's as important for the kids to be able to sit comfortably and learn as it is for the teachers to have uh, which should be the proper working environment. If we're talking about um, salary, for example, it's been shown, studies show, that students have significantly higher math and English standardized test scores in districts that pay teachers a higher base salary. And it just, it just makes total sense. If a teacher doesn't have to work a second job after school, she's going to have more time to devote to thinking about, okay, how do I differentiate this lesson so that my gifted students and my struggling students and my students in the middle all get the most they can out of it? Everything we talk about in terms of teachers' working conditions, everything we improve there will improve schools for students too. And a reminder... That afterwards airs Sunday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Book TV. Well, thanks for joining us for About Books. This is a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Book TV will continue to bring you publishing news and new author programs. And a reminder 
that this podcast is available along with all other C-SPAN podcasts on our C-SPAN Now app. And you can also watch online all Book TV programs anytime at booktv.org.